right, grab your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be reading together verses 12 through 30 today. That'll be our text for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, down the center column of seats, there are two stacked on top of each other under each seat, or at least most of those seats. You're welcome to use that Bible during our time together, and you can actually have it if you don't have a Bible. John chapter 8, verses 12 through 30. And that Bible under the seat, I think it's probably going to be in the 580-something, 88, 89, 90, 581. I was close. Thank you for the help. You guys are nice people. All right, John chapter 8, 12 through 30. Let's read together. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge... My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 30. And he was saying, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you for the light that you are to the world through Jesus. We thank you for the witness of scripture that tells us about him. We thank you for the gospel that invites us uh, to satisfy ourselves in Jesus. Lord, today we pray that you would give us eyes to see in your word what you would have for us as a body and what you would have for us specifically as individuals in regarding Jesus, the light of the world. God, would you open our ears that we might hear 
specifically what the Spirit is, is whispering to us. And God, I pray that we would respond rightly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You ever wonder what it would be, what the world would be if, if there were no light? I mean, like, no light. I, I mean, stuff couldn't even exist. But say that we had the, the luminaries, sun, moon, stars, but you didn't have man-made light. Isn't that incredible? I've been, I've been pondering this all week long. What would it be like to have no man-made light? Believe it or not, only a couple centuries ago did we have the, the creation of, of um, those blocks of energy that, that are able to, to light up whole sections of, of cities and of towns. And that light, I mean, the, the, uh, the creation of man-made light, of, of energy that, you know, cre- lights the light bulb and, and powers all the things that we use was, was made specifically so that people could do stuff like see and be safe during uh, dark, uh, hours of limited darkness. And, of course, we've taken that to new heights now. Think about what life would be like if you didn't have that light on your cell phone sometimes. Tell you about, um, I had a rough night. Y'all need to pray for me because, I, I mean, I, I went to bed at 2. Um, the, the trailer out there, you know, our, our trailer. And so, unbeknownst to me, the key was broken off in the lock. And, I mean, it, it, it was broken. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an Army guy. I, I can figure out most things. So, uh, I tried to take a bunch of ply, uh, a, a set of pliers, pulled it, pulled it, pulled it. Uh, wouldn't come out, so I jammed a screwdriver up in there and tried to, you know, MacGyver. Uh, that didn't work. I went to Walmart to get a bolt cutter. You know, everything can be solved with bolt cutters, right? Everything. You can get into some stuff with bolt cutters. Um, Walmart didn't have any. They were out. Uh, Walmart and Richmond Highway didn't have any. So I went to Home Depot. They had some. They had, they had a small set that I was used to in the Army. Uh, got back to the trailer. I could not get that lock off. Just a simple old master lock. I called a locksmith. It took them four hours to get to get to me. Twelve thirty. The USAA comes. You know they come through finally. Uh, locks, locksmith shows up and he's unprepared. Like I, I, I did better than he did. Um, yeah. So two o'clock. He two o'clock. I helped him solve my problem. But the only way we got to the only way we were able to solve my problem is because I had a light on my cell phone. I'm thinking I'm preaching about Jesus is the light this morning. Jesus, I'm thanking you that somehow you created this cell phone light. <laughs> so pray for me. The central point of our text that, that, that our text makes today is Jesus is the light. You know, light is a mega theme in the Bible, and there are many ways that the Bible portrays what light is, but one of the major ways that we see light portrayed in Scripture as the, is as the image of salvation. Isaiah prophesies these words, The people have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. David wrote a song, and we read it in Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And so in these two verses and in the majority of scripture, light depicts the coming of God with saving life. And that really is what Jesus is talking about when he says in John 8, I'm the, I'm the light of the world. We see this light imagery all throughout John's gospel, 16 times. In fact, John, I mean, it's a mega theme in John for him to portray Jesus as, as light. 
He started it back in chapter 1. John declared that Jesus was the light. John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's equating the life that Jesus have as the light that he offers, that he gives to men. You can't have life in you without having Jesus' life along with that. The light shines in the darkness. That's what light does. That's what my flash, my, the flashlight on my phone was doing. It was, it was making clear those things in the dark that without it, we couldn't have seen to get the, you know, to jerry-rig the trailer so we could open it and have <laughs> worship today. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that neat that darkness yields to light? It, it has to. It cannot, it cannot stand up against light. And that, what John is telling us about Jesus is that in him is the ultimate lightness. He's like anti-dark, and anything that's dark gives way when, he, when he's near in his presence. I think that's a cool thought. And so John's consistent message is that Jesus is the only remedy for the darkness in our world. And um, I don't always give you all three points. I, I'm not necessarily a three-point sermon person, but in, in this text, I think there's three unique and neat things that, that we see that light does. Firstly, you know, light, it dismisses darkness. It, it clarifies. It helps us see things clearer. But here are three things that I think that we need to see from this, uh, these few verses. Firstly, uh, Jesus' light makes clear what it looks like to follow him. So when Jesus, when Jesus presents himself as, uh, as uh, I am the light of the world, he's actually beckoning us, offering us the opportunity to follow him. He's not just saying, look at my bright light like a mosquito going to a light. So can you like get, get zapped? Secondly, Jesus' light helps us escape darkness. And I would, um, I would beg to say you actually can, you can't escape the darkness of our world or the darkness of your life without Jesus in your life. And then thirdly, Jesus' light makes clear the reality of death. Uh, now, the setting for this, this passage is really it's the same setting that we've been in for the last three weeks. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of three feasts where the uh, the Jewish pilgrims, wherever they were, especially those who were 20 miles or so close to Jerusalem, would go to Jerusalem and they, I mean, it would be this, I mean, just a, a straight out party, just a whole bunch of great things happening. The Feast of Tabernacles in particular was to commemorate uh, Israel coming out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. Uh, God brought them into the wilderness uh, he was obviously maturing them in the wilderness. That was the purpose of that. He was going to take them into the promised land. But while they were in the wilderness for 40 whole years, uh, he provided them food. He gave them water, sometimes miraculously, tapping a rock and, water, and just water spewing out. Their clothes didn't wear out. And so this feast was to, to commemorate all that God had done uh, to, to satisfy them, to keep them, to protect them, to guard them in this this harsh environment. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, amongst John chapter seven that um, part of that feast was they did a water ritual. The, the, they have a procession going to the pool of Siloam. The priest would have water. He dipped water out of it in a golden uh, kind of a pitcher. And they would quote Isaiah 12, three, that God has given us the waters of salvation. There was one other significant part of the Feast of Tabernacles that happened on the very first day. And it's called the Festival of Lights. And they would uh, 
they would erect these giant candles. We would we would consider them candelabras like what you see at a wedding, except they were I mean, they were huge, so huge that once they were lit, you could see the lights. I mean, the lights from the candles lit up the whole temple area. More importantly, it lit up the whole city. Um, you think your neighborhood looks neat during Christmas time when all the houses are lit up. I mean, this candelabra display during the festival lights would have been brilliant and it would have. It would have encouraged them to remember the God who was with them as a pillar of fire and and light so that he could guide them and protect them during their time in the wilderness. And and really, it's in view of of this feast, specifically the, the festival of lights within the Feast of Tabernacles, that Jesus says what he does in verse 12. Uh, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of of life. There's a couple of things I want. I think we should note here. Firstly, um, the huge one is I am the light of the world. I am ego emi. Um, that's the, the Greek word that means I am. Um, John chapter six, verse thirty five is the first time that Jesus says that in, in John's gospel. Uh, he says, I am the bread of life. Those that you that you're hungry, you need something to drink, come to me and I will be your spiritual nourishment. Then, of course, here he says, uh, I'm the light of the world. I, I come to, to cast out darkness in you and and provide light so that you can be guided along the way. John chapter 10, he'll say, I'm the I'm the open door, the door that you come through to enter my kingdom. He'll say, I'm the chief shepherd. I'm the one that leads, feeds, protects, guards um, the sheep because sheep need to be guarded and protected and cared for. In John chapter 14, he'll say, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. In John chapter 15, he'll say, uh, actually, uh, John 11 is, I'm the rest. Uh, John 11 is, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, I'm the resurrection and life. And in John uh, 15, he'll say, I am the vine. So he has all these I am statements, and in all of them, Jesus is saying one thing. Uh, I am deity incarnated. When you see me, you're seeing God himself. And he's hearkening back to Exodus 3, when Moses met um, God at the burning bush, that theophany where Moses, you know, Moses is doing this thing in the desert as a shepherd. He's got a staff there. He's got some sheep all around him. He's like, there's a bush on fire. And... It's not being consumed. And so he gets a little closer and the bush starts talking to him. And in this conversation that Moses has with with God in the tree, in the bush, is is God reveals himself as I am that that I am. And and that's who God tells Moses that he I, I exist. I've always existed and I'm here for you to glorify me. And so when Jesus says, I am, he, he basically is saying, I am the divine light that shines into the darkness for our, uh, for our salvation. That's what he's saying here. And so think about this. During this, the Feast of Tabernacles, the, the Festival of Lights, the, the, the Jews were commemorating God leading his people out of bondage and slavery and the darkness of Egypt. And, and then in the wilderness, God eventually would lead them to a place where they would tangibly see God and his light in their midst. And this really is what Jesus is. He's, he's portraying the same idea. He's saying the feast itself and all the rituals that you're doing are pointing to me. That's the first thing. All right, we're going to spend a lot of time in John 12. I mean, verse, verse 12. 
So don't get nervous. I, I, got, a lot, I got a little bit more to go in John, verse 12. Y'all okay? That's the most important um, part of this passage. And then we're going to rush through the rest of it. Second note, um, Jesus doesn't identify himself as, as a light. He, he says, I am the light of the world. Um, look at what he says in John chapter 1, verse 9. He says, the true light. This is, this is uh, John uh, conveying who Jesus is. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming to the world. So Jesus has some, some flags waving as he's, his, he's saying this to the, the Jews right there in John 8. He's like, guess what, guys? All that John talked about that was coming, I, I, I'm here. It's me. I'm in the flesh. That's the second thing to note. The third thing is it goes back to the Old Testament again. You know, in the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would have been forced to recall another part of their Exodus. Exodus 13, uh, 21. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. I read a neat book. Uh, it was called Image of the Spirit by Meredith Klein. He's a professor and a, and a scholar, and he was talking about what this pillar of fire and, and light might have looked like. And he said, and we, we just think maybe it's like a, a torch fire and just streaming up into the, the air, but really it was thunder and smoke and clouds and lightning and just uh, this huge manifestation in front, front of them that they would not have missed. And really what he says is, this is a manifestation of the Spirit before them. In in other words, this is the very presence of God in their midst. And that's what God used to guide them by. When the the cloud and fire moved, they moved. When the cloud and fire stopped, they stopped. It was there for them to, to, to guide them. Somehow it was there to protect them. But mostly it was for them to be able to see the direction that God was leading them in through their through their passage through the desert. And so here's the implication from, um, from these verses so far. Um, Jesus calls himself, he says, I am the light of the world. If you think about the, the, the history of our world, there are a lot of things that we have experienced and some in the history books that we read about that masquerade as light, but they're really false lights. I think it goes all the way back to, to fourth century time where you have Plato and, and Aristotle, who, uh, whose influence in regards to reason and rhetoric and making sense of the morality of, of life in our day, still, I mean, the, the underpinnings of, even of things in the church have Plato and Aristotle's, um, th- their hands are on it. We can't do life and think about being people without the influence of Plato and Aristotle. Fast forward several centuries to the uh, to the 17th century during the Enlightenment, and you have something called Western humanism. And, and Western humanism gave rise to evolution, human progress, and tolerance. And think about, I mean, people look to that to um, try to figure out what, I mean, really what life on earth was like, and they used these things as, as a light to guide themselves. And, I mean, think about today. There's, all, there's so, so many false lights that guide us um, we can we just conf- we're confused and they, they come in forms of, of consumerism. Consumerism says if it makes me happy and if I think it satisfies me, then it's good. And if it doesn't make me happy, I don't want to have anything to do with it. 
psychology tries to make sense of what it means to be a person, but it's devoid of God. You have mystic spirituality that, um, that identifies that we're not just uh, physical bodies. There's a spirit soul part of us, too, but it comes at it devoid of God. And then you have the false light of the glitter and glamour of Hollywood. Hollywood is over. I mean, we can't we can't even escape um, the celebrity people in our culture. They are on the magazines. When you check out, they're on TV. They're on the radio. I mean, they're they're everywhere. And we're so influenced by the glitter and glamour of the Hollywood light that we want to be it. We want to do it. It's appropriate that Jesus continues by saying, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus says, again, I am the true light. But here's what here's here's the words behind the words. We benefit from his coming into earth only if we firstly believe in him, but also follow him. See that word follow? What does it mean then to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And this really is the the first point that I'll make. Um, Follow this particular word follow right here in the text is the Greek word akalutheo. Um, and it's used in several senses, and a couple of you are going to identify with this. The first sense is a soldier following his commander in the battle. Those of you that are military know that, you know, unless the commander is giving you an immoral or unethical command, then you simply do what you're told. And that's how we are assimilated and social, uh, socialized into a military unit. Um, we learn to not think on our own, but even if you think on your own, simply do what you're, you're told to do. There's been all kinds of uh, books written about men in battle. What would make a man go and charge a hill knowing that he's going to charge it to his death? And um, what's, what the psychology of warfare would tell us that men fight for a higher ideal. Uh, firstly, they're fighting, hopefully, if they respect their commander or the leaders above them. They're, men fight for each other. But above all that is there's some the, the military does a great job of uh, of honing us to a higher ethic. Even if you don't come into the military with it, you gain it just from being a, being in the culture. So you're fighting for a higher ethic, a higher ideal. And so uh, we follow like a soldier following a commander in the battle. Secondly, uh, uh, follow means it's like used like a servant or a slave who tends to his master, again, a person that's just taught to do what, do what they're supposed to do in a service-oriented way. It's used of one uh, who accepts a wise counselor's judgment. And this isn't the, the counselor putting them down. But this, this simply means uh, someone that's a mentor or someone that's older than you that gives you uh, wisdom that you, you don't have yourself, and you receive that wisdom. And then lastly, it's used of, uh, not lastly, it's used when we simply obey the laws of our state. That's what it means to follow. And then lastly, it's used of one who follows in line with his teacher's reasoning. Your teacher has had schooling and uh, they're under authority. You are under their authority. And to simply agree with your teacher when they're teaching you something is to to follow in in line with their reasoning. Here's the truth with with this idea of of following. Jesus is offering us to follow him. Um, Many of us claim to be Christians but we don't follow quite like this. We don't akalutheo, like a soldier following his commander in battle, like someone just simply following the, the, the rules of the state, like someone who just says, my teacher is right, I'm going to do what my teacher, I'm going to solve this problem like my teacher is telling me to do. We don't always do that. And here's why. 
because following requires radical commitment. Actually, the Bible says that following is costly, so costly that other gospels would portray it as to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself, pick up a cross to follow him. And most of us don't always want to do that. We might be willing to do part of it, half of it, three quarters of it, but most of us fall. We fall short in following in the way that Akalutheo presents itself. And that really is why the scripture speaks of following Jesus. It, it always mixes it with faith. You, you can't follow Jesus without him gifting you faith to follow him. If Jesus is the light, it means He's setting the direction and the destiny for our lives. If he's leading us, we should follow. But here's the thing about faith. True faith in Scripture is a following faith. True faith in Scripture is a following faith. It acknowledges that the truth about Jesus is he's the light of the world. But it's, and this is, this is going to sound wrong to some of y'all. It's, it's not enough to have faith. It's just not enough to have faith. Scripture says that the demons, demons have faith. They, they believe in, in Jesus and they tremble. Our faith has to be backed up by us actually following. Pleasing your allegiance to Jesus. Where he goes, I will follow, so to speak. Where does Jesus lead us? Verse 12 tells us he leads us to the light of life. And that's, that's the hope of the gospel. You know, that's, that, that really is the direction that Jesus is trying to get us to go. The wonderful hope of the gospel is that Jesus leads us to life. In the Old Testament, God was leading Israel to a land where he intended them to, uh, to, to, to flourish, to have all that they need. But here was the, here was the, the neat thing about um, the promised land. You know, the, we, we read the Old Testament and it says, it was, it, this is the refrain. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. When the, when the 12 spies went and spied it out, there was like fruit, you know, like huge bananas and uh, all kinds of fruit. Uh, and they saw it's like, wow, that's some neat stuff growing there. But here's the special thing about the, the promised land. God was going to be there. God was going to be in the midst of his people. They would build a tent for him. You know, first they came in and still with a, a pillar of clouds and uh, clouds and, and a pillar of fire by night. They followed him there and eventually he let them build a tent and they graduated to a, a tabernacle, you know, cloth oriented structures. And then Solomon built this grandiose temple and they put the Holy of Holies there with an Ark of the Covenant, mercy seat above, all symbolizing God and his glory dwelling with his people. That, that was the neat thing about the promised land. And just like Israel were the people of God, we are the people of God today. And that still should be our hope. Jesus is leading us to life itself and we'll be with God forever. Um, where is he leading us? Uh, obviously, he's leading us through this life, growing us so that we'll be more like him. But the the eternity of our life is obviously a new heaven and a new earth. And, you know, sometimes we get fixated on what in the world is that going to be like? I was talking with one of my neighbors. Um, I had an interesting conversation with one of my neighbors. Um, and I, I love talking to this one particular uh, person. 
Um, I, th I think she's a searcher of Christianity, and I, I am fortunate. I am blessed that she comes to me and tries out different questions about her own spirituality with me. And we, got, we were talking about heaven and floating and I mean, mystics. It was, it was just a wonderful conversation. Um, but the new heaven and the new earth is going to have some awesome things in it. It's going to be a river flowing through it that, uh, you know, that heals the nations. There's going to be trees in there that, that provide food for us and uh, gold streets. And here, but here's the wonderful thing. God is going to be there on his throne. Jesus is going to be there glorified and we get to worship him forever. Not fat little angels on a, on a cloud playing a harp, that kind of stuff. It's going to be uh, worship because we will be in the very pre the unadulterated presence of God. And somehow that's going to be life to us. Life that we have yet to experience, even if you know Jesus in this life. You can't buy that. One of the reasons we are invited to follow the light of Jesus is to escape darkness. That's what verse 12 says. We aren't, we aren't out of verse 12 yet. Y'all okay? In a sense, we really can't appreciate the nature of the light Jesus brings until we have a grasp on what the Bible says about darkness. What does it look like to be in darkness? Uh, the Bible gives, uh, much like it portrays light in a number of ways, this is what the Bible says about, about darkness. The most vivid picture is one that you are familiar with because you grew up with it. Um, it's evil and fear. Uh, I mean, I mean, who's afraid, of the, who's afraid of the dark? Don't raise your hand. All right. I, yeah, yeah. All right. Some of us still are. But that starts when we were little kids. I, I've told this story before. Uh, I used to wet the bed, and I wet the bed for a prolonged amount of years because I thought there were alligators in my floor when it was dark, and I, I just couldn't get, I could not get up. Crazy, but it was true. Um, my grandma lived in the country. My grandma, my maternal grandmother uh, of Chapel Hill, dirt road, old white house, I mean, all that. And uh, we, you know, in the country, you go to bed early. And so uh, at night, I'm laying in my bed. I couldn't go to sleep because I heard all these sounds like frogs and owls and foxes and coyotes and dogs barking at all that stuff. And I'm like, what is that stuff? I'm, you know, I'm like six or seven years, years old. And of course, you learn at some point, all right, it's just nature. Nature's coming, those nocturnal animals are coming alive. But that stuff freaked me out when I was a young kid. And I, I learned that the bad stuff, the evil stuff is, is out there. It's outside of the house. As long as, long as I'm inside, I'm okay. But here's, here's the deal. The, this, the Bible says evil's not out there. I, I know evil can be out there, but evil's not out there. Evil's actually in here. That's what the Bible says. And that's what you got to be kidding me. Some, most people don't live life like that. Um, John 3 um, conveys the same perspective. John 3, 19. Do I have that? Y'all got John 3, 19 somewhere? No? I'm sorry. I'm going to turn to John 3:19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so right right from the very beginning when Jesus was this is the the passage that he's talking to Nicodemus. And so he's in, uh, unpacking for Nicodemus, this idea that Nicodemus, you got to be born again. You need the spirit to illuminate your your soul. And you need to be cleansed. And then he has this 
uh, this theological discussion with him. And, and, and what he's saying is evil's not out here, Nicodemus. It's actually inside of you. It's, it's inside of you. Um, it, it, if we go all the way back to the beginning, the world wasn't created dark. It became dark because of sin. That really is the story of Genesis chapter 3. Um, under the influence of Satan, Adam and Eve uh, were convinced to do what God said not to do, and they took the step that they should not have taken, and and they sinned. And because they sinned, the next thing that darkness looks like is judgment and eventual wrath of God coming to the world. That is, the world in its sinful darkness sits under God's judgment and is consigned to his wrath. Prophets like uh, Zechariah and, and Jesus himself says that... Um, they call it the, the day of the Lord. There'll be this, this end time day of the Lord where the judgment of God on his people and all creation will happen. And the, the culmination of that will be God's wrath. And this is what the Bible says that God's wrath looks like. It says weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that, that just doesn't sound good to me. That's a picture of the darkness that comes because of sin, judgment and wrath. So we got evil and fear. We got judgment and wrath. Thirdly, um, darkness looks like uh, what the Bible calls bondage, misery, and death. And one example of that is, is simply Israel in, uh, in their lives of slavery uh, with Egypt. And of course, this, their, their bondage was not their own doing, but the Bible conveys any time that you are trapped um, and can't get yourself out by what you do, then you're, you're in bondage, you're in slavery, and that yields to, yields to misery. Paul updates this thought in Ephesians chapter 6. He suggests that mankind suffers presently in the slave chains of Satan. He calls it this present darkness. And really what Paul is saying is here's true bondage. It's when you're in bondage to your sin and you can't do anything to get out. You're trapped. So here's the thing about darkness. Darkness is all these things. It's evil and fear. It's coming under God's judgment and wrath. It's, uh, it's bondage, misery, and death uh, that, that come about uh, either when we're sinning or sin happens to us. But um, this is what I, I think I'm trying to convey. Most of us spend all of our lives in darkness, so much so that we are not nocturnal. We actually live all of our lives from beginning through much of it in the dark. We're like an owl. Our eyes are wide open. It's late at night. We're hoot, hoot, hooting, looking for rodents to eat. And we're satisfied eating those rodents um, because we're in darkness and we don't even know it. We need the light of Jesus. And that really is why God sends him to us. All right. One more one more picture of darkness. And that's the one that John gives us in in the text. And it's the darkness of ignorance and folly. And that's what we see in the in the Pharisees. We're out, of, we're out of verse 12. You guys all right? Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. All right. So the Pharisees, right off the bat, they're challenging Jesus' words. They've been challenging his words for a long time. Actually, they are taking something out of context that Jesus said in five, uh, chapter 5, verse, uh, verse 31. Jesus says these very same words in uh, 531. He says that no one can bear witness about themselves. Uh, actually, that comes from the, from the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees are basically going, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you're doing what you said you, that we should not do. 
honestly, what they're doing is they're saying, you know, Jesus, you can say you're the light of the world. That's your opinion. We don't buy that. In fact, we don't we don't like you and we don't believe you at all. And what we see happening in the Pharisees is the same thing that's been happening ever since John chapter six. Uh, The darkness of ignorance and folly is on display. And this is how it's on display in them. Stubborn unbelief. They refuse to believe, even with evidence that Jesus is all that he says he is. You ever had somebody challenge you and what you were saying or your opinion about something and you just like you want to raise up and defend yourself? You might even want to like hit them. It's interesting that Jesus does not do that here. I mean, he he feels no need to defend himself. He just keeps on talking. Verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I'm where I come from or where I'm going. It's like verse 14. Jesus is like saying, all right, you got me. But here's the deal. Even if I am giving my own testimony, my testimony is self-validating because of the nature of who I am. And it, I can't help that out of all that you've seen and heard from me, you can't figure out who I am. But I'm telling you who I am. You just won't believe it. Verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Right there he's saying, you know what? You're coming at me with an agenda. And, and, and here's my agenda. I want to challenge. I'm going to challenge your agenda uh, in terms of you trying to get me to be who you want me to be, because I'm not coming to be that. Actually, I'm coming to establish a new rule and reign. And that's what you need to receive. Verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the father who sent me in your law. It's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. And so they're challenging Jesus testimony. And and in these words, basically, I mean, Jesus is just preaching. He, he's not defending himself. He's saying the same thing that he's said from chapter five on through chapter six into chapter seven. And now again in chapter eight, he's like, I, uh, I'm sent by God to to to, to be amongst you. Me and the Father, we're one. I only say, I only do what the Father uh, allows me to, to say and do. And oh, by the way, here are all these miracles that I've done. And so what's my testimony? I, I am. I, I am the bread of life. I am the, I'm the bread that, um, that nourishes you. I am the light that lights the world up. I, I am the one that's existed before time began, and I'm here incarnate in the flesh right before you to represent God before you and, and give you the opportunity to come to him. And if you don't believe me and my testimony, guess what? Here's the father's testimony about me. He's allowed me to do all these great miracles, turning water into wine and, and healing people. The father and I both testify to who I am. Verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Ultimately, um, I mean, the, the, the Pharisees are, are there's this tit for tat. They're, they're challenging Jesus every word. And ultimately, because of the ignorance of, of their own folly and the darkness behind their heart and hearts, 
They just can't understand. They refuse to understand. And the reason why they rejected Jesus was because they simply don't know God. Think about that. Not knowing God really is a personification of darkness in our life. Scripture says that uh, the wicked are in darkness. What's a wicked person? It's not necessarily a person that does bad. It's a person that simply doesn't know God. There's nothing in their uh, in their inner life that transformed them from who they are to what God would would have them be. Darkness is is being confused about God, not knowing who God is or the destination he has for us. And so Jesus is saying those who choose to step out in faith and follow him, they leave this darkness behind and they can have life. All right. So the first thing, Jesus light brings clarity. It, it makes things easier for us to see. Jesus makes clear what it looks like to follow him. Jesus, uh, the, his light helps us to escape the darkness. And the last thing, the last point I have for you today is Jesus light makes clear the reality of death. And so as Jesus is speaking, people are, they're absolutely not happy with what he's saying. I mean, ever since John 6, uh, people have gotten more and more upset with his words. The, the crowd that followed him in John 6, when he says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's like, ew, that doesn't make sense. And they start leaving him. And the Pharisees are challenging him because in all they're seeing and hearing, they just for whatever reason cannot believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so the lesson I think from that is um, the gospel will always be offensive to some people. You should expect that when you are living a gospel-centered life and you are speaking gospel-centered words, that someone is going to get offended by how you live, what you say, what you do, without you even doing anything to, to really offend them. Jesus doesn't shrink back from this, however. If anything, his message becomes more direct. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I start here, uh, really, verse 20 through all the rest of chapter 8, Jesus is going to illuminate everything that he said from verse 12 through, through verse 19. And he does that in little bitty, little bitty increments. Um, a couple things of note here. When he says the treasury, the treasury was the, the, court, of, the court of women in the, in the temple. And it was, uh, it was a place where people brought free will offerings. It's like in the back of the room, there's a, a, a box that we, we suggest people give offerings to the church. So a person would bring a free will offering of grain or meat or coins, whatever, uh, to the temple as an offering to God. And the irony of that is, uh, is Jesus is in this place where people give, bring offerings to God. And literally the, the greatest gift that God had ever given to Mankind was in their midst, and these religious people were going to reject Jesus in that very place. Just such an irony. Um, The other thing to note in verse 20, because his hour had not yet come, we've seen that phrase before. We saw it two times in verse in chapter seven, and we see it here again. And this is this is an important phrase because it it speaks of Jesus' death. It speaks of the point that the moment that he will be glorified. You know, there are. There are God-appointed moments, obviously, throughout history. Uh, Creation was a God-appointed moment. God decided that he was going to create a world and all that that exists and set it in motion. Um, Several events in Israel's life were were God-appointed kairos 
moments. Jesus' incarnation, the second person of the Trinity becoming flesh was a God-appointed moment. And the most God-appointed moment uh, moment um, in the church is that point where Jesus dies on the cross in our place for our sin. And so when it says that uh, the, the, Fer- the Pharisees, they tried in many ways to, to shut him up and to arrest him, but they could not. Why not? Because his hour had not yet come. God had a pre- destined moment that Jesus was going to be glorified, and that glorification was going to happen on the cross when God was ready for it to happen. Not not before that. All right, where am I? Verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from above, I am from below. Where's that? You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so, uh, again, this, this back and forth between Jesus and, and, the, and the Pharisees, uh, he brings up this idea of sins two times here. And You'll see in verse 21, he says the sins is plural. In verse 24, uh, he uses a a plural version of the word sins. And so Jesus is saying, uh, your unbelief is the the greatest sin that that you'll ever display on the earth. Sin at its core is not believing in Jesus. And he says, that's going to condemn you the most. And then Jesus adds, on top of that, when you commit the sin of unbelief, there's all these other sins of greed and lust and um, gluttony and pride and all those other things that happen in our lives for which at the end of the age, God will, God will open a book of life and he'll look for those that have expressed faith in Jesus and whom Jesus has uh, died in their place for their sins on the cross for. And if your name is not there, then you'll be one that experiences the, the, the fitful judgment and wrath of God. And so our condemnation begins when we don't simply believe in Jesus. And then from here, Jesus starts uh, issuing strong warnings. I got to finish this passage out. All right. Verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declared to, uh, to the world what I've heard him heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, Then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. The the, the focus here, obviously, is is verse 28. And in verse 28, he says, if I'm lifted up, Jesus is saying, you know what? God sent me to preach to y'all and I could judge, but I'm not going to. I got a lot of stuff I got to tell you before I go to the cross. But tell you what, you will know who I am without doubt. When I'm lifted up and, and think about it in a, a year's time, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He's tried. He's convicted as guilty for a crime that he did not, did not commit. They nail him to a cross, a tree, and they put it upright and he dies in our place on that tree. That's what he said. That's what he means by um, I'm going to be lifted up. I, I take note that Jesus uses one of um, his favorite terms for himself. He says, when you have lifted up the son of man, the son of man is this famous phrase from Daniel chapter seven. Daniel has this vision. 
He sees heaven and um, he sees the Ancient of Days, God on his throne being glorified. And then the vision turns into night and then uh, introduced is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man comes and God gives all of his glory to the Son. And so that, that's Jesus' favorite phrase for himself. And of course, what he's saying there is, I'm going to receive all glory that the Father gives me, both in this world and the world to come. And here's the implication from all this. Um, it's at the cross of Jesus that God speaks to people. That's what Jesus is preaching all these words, but he's saying, you're going to really know who I am at the cross. God is going to speak to all of creation. He's going to speak through all of eternity about who I am at the cross. God's going to speak demonstrably. He's going to speak even audibly about who Jesus is when he reveals who he is specifically at his death. You know, a lot of times we think that the cross is the first stage to Jesus, his glorification and his exaltation, but, it, but it's not. When Jesus dies on the cross, that's it. That's God lifting him up to the highest, the highest place that he'll ever be. He is exalted as Lord God, Savior and King forever at that point. It's God saying, this is my very son, son of God, son of man, sent by God, to obey me. And that's what verse 29 says. That's what verse 29 is getting at, rather. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. God says Jesus does um, exactly what he says he's supposed to do. Everything God demands, Jesus does those things. We can only know God through Jesus. And the neat thing is Jesus does the things that God um, has for him. Um, when I was a young kid, this is my last story that I'm going to close. Um, I played tennis and one of the, the, the journey that we, uh, that we got from the tennis courts to a, one of my friend's house was a, a, a track and, you know, kids aren't supposed to play on train tracks, but we did because we were hard headed. And, uh, often a train would come by and, uh, the train would see us, the conductor would see us. And what does the train do when it knows that something, uh, an obstacle is in its way? Obviously, the, the bright lights are on and they toot the horn <laughs> to get out of the way. And of course, we get out of the way and we stand by, we, we mesmerize by this train. But the, you know, the, the good thing is that the, the conductor was giving us a warning. Get out of the way. Something is coming through. And that really is what Jesus is doing through this whole passage. This is a warning for us. It's a warning uh, that a warning of, of God's act of love before the coming judgment and wrath of God. God sends his son who's obediently serving as a bright light amidst a dark world. And he's warning us. Jesus' whole mission is an act of love to tell us how things really are. Jesus' bright light brings clarity to our world of darkness we're naturally entrenched in darkness. Remember that analogy I gave? We're like owls. Our eyes are wide open. It's at night and we're hooting, just looking for animals. We're immersed in darkness and we don't even know it. And so the, the light of Jesus makes the reality of our lives clear. Firstly, that we're in darkness, but he helps to navigate, helps us to navigate our way. And this passage more than anything teaches us if we reject Jesus, the sin of unbelief is like a weight that's tied to our neck that if we, would, uh, if we fall down, fall to the grave, we'll never make our way out, at least not with his help, not without his help. And so here's what John 8 is trying to, to, to teach us, at least this, this small section here. Jesus is the light of the world. 
He's sent by God to dismiss darkness in our world. More importantly, he comes to dismiss the darkness inside of us, inside of each one of you. If you reject that Jesus is who he says he is, this text says you'll die in your sins. And here's his appeal. We don't have to. Seriously, that's what he's saying. I'm the light of the world. There's a whole bunch of people that are rejecting me because of unbelief. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to die in your sins. And he says, he specifically says, you don't have to die in your sins because of chapter 8, verse 28. I've been lifted up. I've died in your place for your sins. You don't have to die because Jesus already has. God speaks to you through the cross of Jesus and tells you, you don't need to die for your sins. Jesus already has. And there really is a sense of urgency in these words for us. It's for all of us, whether you're a Christian or, or not. And, and the sense of urgency is, is simply this. How do you respond to a word like this? How do you respond to, to Jesus telling us he's a light in the midst of our dark world and that the darkness isn't out here, it, it's in here? I've got a couple suggestions for us. Some of you need to go to the Lord in prayer because perhaps you're a Christian, perhaps you're following God, but you're living a life of complacency. And what does light do? It, it dispels darkness. Darkness has to flee in the, in the form of, of God's light. But here's what light does as well. It guides and directs. And perhaps you're complacent because you're not letting God guide and direct you. That's what he did with, uh, with Israel through the, through the wilderness. He guided and directed them by cloud and by flame at night. And so would you go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to guide and direct you? Maybe some of you are, are being called to something bigger. Perhaps it's, you know, a new job, a new place to live, a new thing that God is calling you to. That's what light does. It helps, it clarifies things in your life so that you're not seeing them in the nocturnal nature of your own self and your own darkness, but you're seeing them in the brightness of light that only God can give you. There's a few of us that are being called to serve. Not in the sense that you need to serve in your local church, although that would be nice, but serve something bigger than yourself. And, and this is the way I think of this. When I think about serving, I think about, I mean, there's people that God has put around you in your neighborhood, at your work, where you recreate, in all those parts of life that, that you could be serving by representing in yourself that Jesus is the light of the world. But more than that, he might have made you a mouthpiece that you might be able to articulate. You know what? I was, it's a song. I was in a world of darkness and sin, but Jesus came and he's been the light of my life. And everything is, I mean, I see clearly now. Perhaps he's calling you to that. And then maybe like me, this is, this is where I was this week. Some of us just need to meditate on what Jesus says. And I really have been thinking about this all week. That Jesus is the light of the world. What does that mean for me in my life? What does it mean that he comes to make things clear about how to follow him? What does it mean that Jesus comes as the light to help, help me escape darkness and that he's come to make clear the reality of death? You know, the good news of this text, and there is good news in this text, is that some believe in Jesus. That's what verse 30 says. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And I pray that that would be some of our testimony here, that those who've been 
those who have professed faith in Jesus would, would believe in him a little bit more. But those of you that have never believed in Jesus uh, would come to a place that you would see Jesus as this bright light that you're drawn to and that you would have faith in him that God grants you. We're reminded of these truths uh, in these words in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we come to communion, we are reminding ourselves, almost like the feast, the feast that God set up for the nation of Israel. Little reminders every so often in their lives, because we're forgetful people, that God is the great I am. You know, you want to know why Jesus says that so many times? Because we're forgetful. We, we forget even who God is. And God wants us to remember, I am that I am. I am the bread of life. I've come to to give my life so that you might have life. I have come to be this bright light in the midst of a dark world because you're surrounded by it and you don't even know it. Would you come to my light? And, and he'll say other things in regards to himself later on. And so as we come to communion, be reminded that the great I am loves you enough to die for you on a cross. His body was broken for you. His blood was spilt for you to forgive you of your sins, reconcile you to God, and, and give you a life that you, that he wants you to live.